0: Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's Revenge? Daniel-san, you look Revenge that way. Start by digging to the grave. Walk right side safe, walk left side safe, walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grip. Hey guys and gals, welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode 16, yeah that's right, 16 times. Now we've gotten together in the mornings here to talk about individual subjects, Today is one that actually was spawned by a response to a post that I did on Parlor that I really didn't expect. Sometimes I do a post and I'm like, this one's gonna trigger people and they get all triggered, right? Uh, so I used to make that into a gift. Triggered! And make me a famous gift. Anyway, um, so I did this post and it was just basically the anarchist symbol. And it was a statement about what anarchy is. And I said something to the effect, if uh, if you think the assholes dressed in black burning shit down on TV are anarchists, you don't know anything at all about anarchy. Something to that effect. And ended up with like 75,000 views and hundreds of comments and a bunch of triggered individuals, man. I mean, they were triggered by this because you're an idiot if you think anarchy can work. Well, as you saw if you looked at the title of this video is, you're probably an anarchist whether you know it or not. At least most of you are. At least in my audience. And even many people that consider themselves right-wing, you know, small government, blah, 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 blah. If I ask you this simple question, there's there's two questions you can look at that will show that you're one degree or another of an anarchist. And one is, do you believe that taxation is theft? And that's an absolute. If you believe that, period. Like, there is no place... For one person taking property from another person against their will through the use of force, then you are an anarchist. You just haven't figured out how it works yet. If you believe it's okay, I I could debate that with you, but then maybe you're not an anarchist, right? I mean, that's that's pretty simple. And I would just say if you think it's okay, then I want to know this. How can a person without a right confer a right they do not have to another person? Because that's what voting is. If I don't have a right... To come to your house and demand 15% of your shit, then I can't elect somebody to take 15% of your shit. Does that make sense? And all this social contract crap, I'm sorry, I wasn't there to agree to it. But let's take something a little bit easier to, to swallow for most people. If you believe in the basic principles of agorism, you're an anarchist. And that basic principle that I'm talking about today is, do you believe that two people have a right to trade with each other independent of any third party? if they want to. In other words, to make that really simple, do you think, let's say that you make really good cider and your neighbor grows a bunch of apples and your neighbor gives you apples and you give them cider, do you think that's okay? Or do you think that you should report that transaction to the Internal Revenue Service and pay taxes on it? Do you think that the Internal Revenue Service needs to know about that? Do you think the government needs to know about that transaction between you and your neighbor? No? Guess what? That's anarchism. And that's kind of my point today. I'm not an anarchist because I want to change the world to an anarchist non-state. I'm not an anarchist because I want to impose my will of what I consider anarchy on you. I am an anarchist not because of how I think, but because of how I act, which is driven by how I think. And what I mean by that is plenty of things that I do, and probably things that you do every day, you could call very anarchist. When you're driving down the road and the speed limit says 55, and you're like, no, fuck that, there's no reason to do 55 here, and I don't think I'm going to get caught by a cop, and you drive 65, you're being an anarchist. You're choosing to not obey the rules set above you because you're not recognizing the authority of the ruler to impose that rule on you. Okay, And you might slow down if you think you're going to get caught, but that's no different than you might uh, be a little bit guarded if you have to walk through a dark alley thinking somebody might rob you. You see how that works. Every time you do anything that the government says you're supposed to do a certain way and you choose not to, you're being an anarchist. And I am an anarchist, in in many ways as I can, not just through disobedience, but through lifestyle choices. Here's some examples. Number one, most people, the food you buy is almost 100% of it is subsidized by tax dollars. I've made a lifestyle choice. I don't consume grains. I only consume locally produced, grass-fed, etc., and therefore, the majority of the food I, can, I consume is not subsidized with tax dollars. That's an anarchist conscious objection decision. Additionally, a huge portion of the meat that I acquire from my home, I barter for. I barter for it. I don't buy it. I barter for it. That's an act of anarchy. Because the system doesn't want that. I certainly don't tell the government, hey, I bartered for a steak today. That's anarchy. When I moved here, I sought a place to be as least dependent on the system as I possibly could. While I get electricity, and there is some subsidy in that, it comes from a private company, and I chose a competitive carrier, not the one the government said I had to. That's edgy, but it's you could call it at least a little bit there. But I also chose a place where I have my own well, and I have my own septic system. I do not rely on the government for my waste or for my water. That's a decision. That's a conscious decision to do without government and to impose a a private solution in my life. That's a choice. That's anarchy. Where I live, I also chose a place where, guess what? We have no government-provided garbage removal. How would you ever get rid of garbage? It turns out there's people who will voluntarily come get your garbage and take it away for you if you pay them money voluntarily. You don't actually need a third-party intermediary like the government. I'm an anarchist by using cryptocurrency, specifically privacy coins like Monero and R. If I have to explain to you how that works, you don't really know what cryptocurrencies are or Monero and R are, and that's not what today's subject is about. But by doing business in a completely private way where transacting business is only between two people with no third-party intermediary and no reporting to the government, that's as anarchist and as agorist as fuck. See, so now I know what some of you are going to say. But you used to be You use to be Okay. You want to do a purity test? How about this? Do you ever cheat on your taxes? Okay, you don't pass a purity test. Do you ever speed when you're in your car? Okay, you don't pass a purity test. Do you ever conduct barter without reporting it to the government? Okay, you don't... See how that works? See, we got to stop thinking in this binary, like, you know, ones and zeros world that we live in today. On, off, one, zero. On, off, ones... No, no, no. It's like a dimmer switch. How much of this can you incorporate into your life? I live as anarchist as I can, in the world that I live in, with an expectation that there are certain things I need to do to protect myself. And again, if I'm walking down the road and somebody robs me, and instead of being able for me to draw down on them, they have, you know, there's a guy there, a guy there, a guy behind me, and a guy over there, and all of them have a gun pointed at me at the same time, and they say, give me your wallet, and I know of drawing my weapon, I'm going to I'm going to die i got no choice. I'm going to give them my wallet. That does not mean that I see them as legitimate authorities in my life. And that's the big one. I deny the legitimacy of the state. That's what makes me an anarchist. Not because, oh, I want to, you know what, if you want to live with Nancy Pelosi as your Speaker of the House, you get to do that. I'm an anarchist. I don't have the right to take that away from you. Do you see how that works? If you want to live with a boot on your throat, you have every right to live with a boot on your throat. I have every right to resist it. That's what anarchism is. It's not these jackasses on TV throwing shit through windows and people say, well, what would you do about in Anarchy. If it was an anarcho-society, those people would have got shot in the face the day that shit started and those cities would not have burned. That's what would have happened because the right to your property as seen as valid. The peaceful, rightful property holdings that you have have to be respected. And people that don't respect that, they say, well, they're leftist anarchists. They're anarcho communists Sorry, sorry, guys. That's not a thing. That's not a thing because you can't impose your will on others through force and be an anarchist because you're violating what's known as the non-aggression principle. And how are you going to impose your will on others to create a communist society without a state. You can't do it. You need a state to do that. If you have a state, you're not an anarchist. See how that works? I know they call themselves anarchists. I know it's generally recognized in the intellectual school of thought that there are, you know, communist anarchists. And I'll tell you how communism anarchism works. I just haven't ever met a communist anarchist that's okay with this. Maybe a few of them are out there somewhere. I don't know. You do you, and I'll do me. If communism, if socialism is an adjective rather than a system imposed from a hierarchy, I have no problem with it. If you and all your buddies want to form a commune, if you want to form a collective that is beyond borders with economic agreements between yourselves, and as long as you voluntarily engage in that, go ahead. Now, I'll tell you why they don't ever want to do it. They don't ever want to make the agreement back, like, so then I can go out and do all my anarcho-capitalist stuff if you feel the need to put a label on it, because they know it won't work for them. And they know it will work for me, because here's the final thing on how I know most people are anarchists at heart. And it is a agorism that tells us this. Everything that we look at politically in general, it requires the imposition of a system by some form of authority to make it run. So taxation requires imposition. All right? Here we go. Agorism requires nothing but human beings left to themselves. You cannot show me a group of people anywhere in any condition at all ever that didn't engage in trade and commerce. Little kids set up lemonade stands. You put people in prison, they still engage in commerce. When they're not supposed to. Even when the, posi- the, the system imposes a barrier to commerce, we as humans conduct commerce. Unlike most principles that we have in the world today that we see as, well, it came from God or it was ordained with this. Uh Uh-uh. We created all these systems. We made all these systems. We invented all these systems. Agorism was not invented by humans. It is what humans do. Put two kids together in a room, give them a stack of baseball cards, and see how long it takes before they start trading. And they don't need a third party. If you don't think you need a third party to conduct commerce... You're an agorist, and if you're agorist, you're an anarchist. I know that may be hard to believe, but just because you don't know how to make it work yet doesn't mean it isn't what you really believe at your core. Do you believe that you can convey a right you do not have? If you say no, you cannot convey a right you don't have, you can't defend voting, and you can't defend the state. You're in conflict with yourself. That's for you to resolve. Not me. We'll catch up with you tomorrow with another one. Hey guys, Jack here with Miyagi Mornings episode. What is it? Uh, I don't know, 17? Yeah, 17. So, anyway, yesterday was kind of a deep topic. It probably seemed political to some, though I don't think it really was because it's not about picking the side. It's about being yourself when we talk about agorism and anarchism. Today I got something that'll appeal to everybody, I hope. Anyway, it has absolutely nothing to do with politics, other than politics may be part of what's wrong with the stress in your brain that this will help with. And it's the value of a garden beyond the fact that it produces food for you to consume for your family and makes you money. Like, you can literally print money by growing food and growing plants. I don't know if you know that, or you can, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the immeasurable things that it brings to you. The first thing, and this was spawned by a, a comment that came into me yesterday, was can you talk about the benefit of being able to come home from a job and vent to your garden? To be able to come home and, and just like, ah! and let go of the day's crap that's built up on you. Where you come home and there's like this dark, murky shit cloud on you. And you don't want to talk to your wife or your husband or your kids because you know you're going to be a dick and you don't want to be a dick to your family and the reason you're going to be a dick has nothing to do with them. Like there's literally nothing they can do that's right right now that won't make you angry because you're already angry. So anything that isn't exactly what you want to hear will make you angrier. That's what happens when you're angry. That's how you get. This might seem a little bit weird, but man, I don't have to think hard about this at all. This was me before I started doing my podcast and walked away from corporate America. I worked as a C-level officer in a holding corporation managing three other corporations. So basically, I was doing the job of basically four C-level officers. Do you know what that means? That means you have to be an asshole all day, every day, nonstop. And you're responsible for everything. And you have to deal with crap on a constant daily basis that you don't want to deal with. And you have to deal with, it's a lot like being in the military and being an NCO or an officer. You're dealing with grown-ass adults they can't behave like grown-ass adults. That's part of running a company. And you have to be the one in charge. You have to be the one to make the tough decision all day, every day. And then you come home and your wife wants to know, what do you want me to take out for dinner tomorrow? Can you make a decision? That's not a reasonable response, but it's how you feel. Like, I've done nothing but make decisions. It's freaking Thursday. I've made decisions nonstop, 12 hours a day, for four days in a row, and I fought traffic. I don't want, and you know what I would do? I would come home. I'd walk in. I'd fake it till I made it, right? Give her a kiss, say hello, whatever, and right out the back door, and I would water the garden. And people say, why don't you automate that garden? Like, you have, you know, a bunch of them around here are automated. No, at that time, I wasn't going to automate. That was something for me to do. I came home, maybe I had a beer while I did it, put some music on the cell phone or whatever, turned the garden hose on, and I watered the garden. And you know what happened to me? By the time I was done with that, I was a human being again. I could go in and be a good husband and a good father. And if somebody asked me, what do you want to take out for dinner tomorrow? I don't know, what do you want? And I could have a conversation about it without being a dick. Why? Because it re-rooted it basically it re-rooted me, pun intended, into what it is to be a human being. When we put our hands in soil, when we co-create with nature, we're doing something that's innately human. And it's why it feels good. Even when, it, like, think about it, there's not a lot of things that people do, unless they're trying to get in shape and be like Arnold or whatever, lifting weights and all, that is as much work as gardening is, that they do voluntarily, for such a really low return based on the energy input threshold. Now, there's ways to make gardening a lot easier, and I do a lot of that now. But, I mean, a lot of gardening is a lot of hard work, and people willingly do it. And they're not just doing it for some tomatoes and peppers. I guess if you're a subsistence gardener like I was when I was a kid, yeah, maybe you are. But for a lot of people, it's just a hobby. Well, it's because we co-evolved with plants on this planet. And we were the one species, because maybe squirrels and stuff like that, they might garden by accident. Everything gardens is a permaculture principle. But when it comes down to we're the only species on this planet that's like, oh, that tastes good. Maybe if I take this piece of it and put it in the ground over here, more of it will grow. Oh, it did. And then cultivate that and then figure out, like, if I I pick all the big ones and save the seeds from those, I can make more big ones. We're the only ones that ever did that. And we've been doing that. For tens of thousands of years, we've been cohabitating with plants, and we've been planting and growing and breeding and selecting and caring for plants. We've done it as forest gardeners, as, as, as hunter-gatherers. There are places in, in Southern California that I visited where there were systems that were 250 years into decay after the natives were removed before we realized the reason they were in decay is that they were not being cared for anymore. Things like the Manzanita the Manzanita trees that were being actually gardened by hunter-gatherers in a way that didn't even look like a garden, as though we think something like permaculture is a new thing, or forest gardening is a new thing. And they lasted over 200 years before they began to really break down. That's how little care they required, but the care was required. So to me, the the value of a garden is as much emotional and spiritual as it is from the food that we gain from it. It does so much for us. It improves our property values. It gets us outside. It gets us in, in contact with microbes. Maybe one of the reasons we have so much problem with disease and illness in our society today is not only is our diet garbage, but we're not being exposed to the natural biology that we are supposed to be exposed to that we come up with. This really isn't that hard to understand. I listened to Jeff Lawton one time said if you want to get into longevity, here's what to do. Don't travel much. Stay where you are, go outside a lot. Eat the plants that grow there, get bit by the bugs that live there, play in the dirt that is there, and you'll find that people that do that tend to live longer lives. I never fact checked that, but I've learned something about Jeff Watt, and much like his mentor Bill Mollison, you know, even if the claim is outlandish, you can just stop fact checking after, you know, when you fact check somebody about 80 times, you can finally go, okay, alright, unless there's a compelling reason to, to doubt this, I'm gonna go along with it. That's how I feel about Jeff and that claim, and I, I believe that if you track that down, you'll find out a lot of these societies where they eat bitter melon or they eat whatever, you know, like in, 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 you know, southern Japan, they have these, you know, more centurions than any other society and they eat bitter melon. But what they do, what they have in common is they're all outside every day, they walk every day, they have a spiritual meaning in their life and they garden and they get bit by the bugs that are there and they put their hands in the soil that's there and they live really, really long lives. You, you can't emulate that by eating sweet potatoes and bitter melon. Unless you're growing sweet potatoes and bitter melon. And you're getting your hands in your soil. And you're getting bit by the bugs that live where you live. And you're cohabitating with the biology in your region. And you're getting that spiritual boost from being part of the co-creation of life. With that, it's been Jack Spirica with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. We'll be back tomorrow with another one. Well, good morning and uh, good Thursday morning, I should say. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings number 19. It makes sense to me, anyway. I think that's where we're at. Um, today's question that, that prompted this episode is on cryptocurrency. And we've talked about that a lot lately, and, and I realize that we have a ton of people listening who are very new to the subject. They don't know much about it. They want to learn more. They're starting to realize how important this is going to be in the coming decade. It really is, guys. I mean, we're entering a world where the people that control the world's money say you'll own nothing and you'll be happy And one thing you can actually own that they can't take away from you is is a private key to various cryptocurrencies or private keys to various cryptocurrencies. But if you're going to use cryptocurrencies for more than a store of wealth, and you should or you're not really understanding what they are, then at times you're going to need to send cryptocurrencies around and move them from one place to another for various reasons. One, because you wanted to buy something from somebody, so you're sending it to them. And the other would be, well... You want to change it from one crypto to another, and wherever it is, you can't do that, so you need to move it, let's say, from a wallet to an exchange or something like that. And that leads to fees. And fees are something that a lot of people don't seem to understand, and when people say, well, Bitcoin fees are really high compared to something like Litecoin or Bitcoin cash fees, they don't really understand what that means. Well, let's make it concrete first of all, and then we'll explain where these fees come from and and how it all works. So this morning, I, I just cracked open my my wallet and said, "Hey, if I'm going to send a hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin to an exchange, because it doesn't really matter where it goes, it's, it's there's, you're going through the network through the blockchain. How much is it going to cost me?" And it was around two bucks, a little two bucks in change. So It was about two percent. In the world of cryptocurrency, that's expensive. In the world of money, that's not that bad. Um, if you pay me a hundred dollars with PayPal. It costs you $100, but I pay fees to PayPal, and it costs me more than 2 bucks to take 100 bucks from you. As a seller, you know, the buyer pays the fee, so it works out for me. But sooner or later, I'm going to want to move that money, and I'm going to pay the fee anyway. So Bitcoin fees are about on par in the range of what it costs to do business with PayPal. There's a way to change that somewhat, and I'll explain that in a second. Then I said, okay, what if I was going to send myself $100 worth of Bitcoin cash? What's the fees on that? infinitesimally low. It was a penny. So I could send myself Bitcoin Cash, or send somebody Bitcoin Cash, at a penny for $100, or I could send someone $100 worth a Bitcoin and pay two bucks to do it. Well, if it's a large transaction or lots of transactions, that really starts to matter, doesn't it? Not to mention, the Bitcoin f- Cash transaction will go quicker and cost less money. So will Litecoin. So will almost every non-Ether-based coin on the planet. And When people say, well, this is better money than Bitcoin, if you're talking about money from a standpoint of being able to send it to people and what it's going to cost you to do it and how long it's going to take to get there, almost, not all, but almost every <clears throat> non-Ether-based coin is better for money than Bitcoin. So what makes Bitcoin so valuable? It's very secure. And it's seen as a store of value. And what we're about to get to when people want to exchange it, almost anything listed on any exchange will be exchangeable for Bitcoin. Sometimes they have other exchange boards. So we, when we talk about exchanges, you'll have, they call them markets, but in, in stocks, we would call them boards. You know, like Dow Jones, et cetera, right? So different things are on different boards. Well, with cryptocurrency, it'll work. Let's say uh, uh, an exchange might have Bitcoin, Ether, and USDT, Tether, It's the three markets where here's what's listed, and for this, you can get this. So now let's say you are holding a currency like Bitcoin Cash. And you want to change it into Litecoin for whatever reason. Unless you use like a swap service like a Changely or something like that, which has its own embedded fees, it's going to be the case that you're going to need to convert it to something on an exchange that uses, that, that will allow you to make the trade. So if let's say CoinX allows you to buy Litecoin for Bitcoin, Ether, or USDT and it also allows you to convert Bitcoin cash into any one of those, then once it's on the exchange, you can convert it to anything you want and then exchange it to a new thing and then take it back off. But in every send and receive, there's going to be a fee. Now, when we get in exchanges, exchanges have their own fees. That's an exchange fee. That's how they make their money. We'll leave that out for they just know that that's a thing. When you buy and sell on an exchange, they'll say right there how much it's going to cost you. It's usually really, really low. Exchanges make a little bit on a lot to provide liquidity between accounts and security. And that's how they make their money. And we pay for what we want in a society that's free and open. The transaction fees come from something different, though. People generally know about things like mining. Some some coins call it minting. Some coins have have different types of, of protocols. But one way or another, there's computers that make up a network we call a blockchain. And those computers do work of some sort... To verify that when I send you money, you get it, and that my money's actually gone, and you actually can take the money you have and do something with it, right? That that it's not been, like, think about this. It's data, so it could be replicated without this service. Meaning that I have a token for one Bitcoin, and I can control, control C, control V, control V, control V, control V, control V, control V. Have you ever wondered why that's not possible? Since it's just a string of data, why can't I make more of them? And counterfeit. Well, because miners are also transaction verifiers. And that blockchain, if you watch my old video that I did for you in miyagi Morris about blockchain, all these computers come to consensus, kind of all put their hand up and say, hey, this is where we're at in, in the sequence now. And they all go, yes, we all agree. Boom, they move to the next block. That's how that happens. Well, what do you think those people want in return for this? See, cryptocurrency works in a very democratic way but a free-market democratic way in that people that want to participate get a vote by the way they participate. Not everybody gets a vote uh, on what they want someone else to do. It's totally different. And, people, and the other principle behind that is people do act in their own self-interest. You cannot like that, but that's the truth. Everybody acts in their self-interest. And if you don't, then go give all your stuff away. Oh, I don't want to because you act in your self-interest. Well, some people do give all their stuff away. Well, that's because that's in their self, and what they value in their self, that is in their self-interest. We all do things, I didn't say for gain, I said in our self-interest. Many people consider gain self-interest. So just think that right now you have, and and desktop computers don't work for this really very well anymore, but just just to make this easy, you have 10 desktop computers running where you hear the processor going, I mean, they are cranking. They're putting everything they have out. You have a closet. You have stacks, five and five, with cooling fans and everything so they don't burn up. And you're going to push a button, and they're just going to run full speed, 24-7, 365. Why would you do that? You're going to pay an electric bill for that, right? Electricity's not free. It's energy used in mining, right? So you would want something in return for that. And the more computers and the more powerful for the longer time, the more money you would want. That's where the fees come from, and different networks have different protocols that change what fees cost. Now, even within a network, so I said today, Bitcoin, two bucks to send a hundred. Well, if I change it to a lower priority, cheaper cost, I could do it for about a dollar twenty this morning, and that will change based on the network load. Bitcoin Cash, no reason to do it. That's a penny. Who cares? R. It's way. It's a fraction of a penny. Litecoin, fraction of a penny. Who cares? Who gives a shit? No one. And that's because those networks were designed to be more useful for transactional trades. That was their goal. R, or Pirate Chain, was designed to have that going for it. It uses the Bitcoin blockchain, so it gets Bitcoin security. It, It takes less load on computers, so people are willing to participate, and it's completely and totally private and totally decrypted, and no one can see anything unless you allow them to with a view key. So to me... What is the best current cryptocurrency for money, if the other party will take it, R? Pirate Chain. It is the best currency there is, if the other party will take it. This is what, why do people spend so much money to spend Bitcoin? Other, the number one cryptocurrency I accept for memberships is Bitcoin. Do you think it's because I want to receive Bitcoin? I, I do. But do you think it's because it's my preference? No. Of course not. It has high fees. And it's public. People can look up transactions on a blockchain. Doesn't mean I don't hold Bitcoin. Bitcoin has incredible value, and I know people don't like this term, but as digital gold. In that, it is the reserve trading currency that makes all the other currencies fungible into other currencies. So it has value as an investor, but I don't keep all my money in Bitcoin. I would never do that. I think people that are maximalists are fools, you never know what's going to happen. And you also now have all your wealth in a public ledger that people can look up, see, and decipher. So all of these things have different level of fees and different ways to select them or they're flat and cheap. So Litecoin, flat and cheap. There's other, some things you can play around with, but you don't need to on daily transactional activity. Same with Bitcoin Cash. Same with R. Same with Arc. All of these, you know, altcoins have it. Ethereum. <laughs> Ethereum is a freaking mess. Ethereum, when you go to send, you'll see there's a contract send cost, and you pay in gas. And, like, the minimum gas will be, like, 24,000 you know, gas, and it'll cost so much ETH. And that, I looked at an Ethereum transaction today. It was, like, from a buck forty four down to, like, $0.75, even though it wasn't Ethereum. It was an Ethereum-based token, in this case, basic attention token for 100 bucks. So it was cheaper than Bitcoin, but still expensive. The less gas you put on it, just like gas on an accelerator... The 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 slower it'll go, but the less it'll cost you. You get more mileage, but it takes you longer to get there. Think of it like getting on an airplane. If I fly first class and you fly coach, my bag goes on the plane last, so it comes off first. I walk right past the line to get on the plane to get to get the ticket counter taken care of to priority. They take care of me immediately. You go to security, you're held up there. I go right past that, right through the state's uh, you know surveillance apparatus. And when it's time to get on the plane, I get on first and I get off first, and I'm drinking wine while you're sitting in the back and I've already got my bag, I'm in my car and to my hotel, and you're still standing at the baggage carousel or in front of the car rental line, well, a guy looks like he's taking a dump and solving a calculus problem trying to find your car that you reserved three months ago. But eventually you get your car and you go on, and how important is the time to you? And that's the way to think about these fees and whether you're going to pay less and wait longer. If I'm sending money to my own account on an exchange, and I'm not trying to make a buy really, really fast, which is probably a bad idea anyway, because you're not thinking when you're in that mode, I don't give a shit if it takes a day to get there. I don't care. If I'm sending you money to buy a boat, and I want to take the boat and leave, I'm going to put a higher priority on it, because you're not going to accept it until you see the transaction go through. And that's how this all works, and it's just a matter of people that provide a service want to be compensated for it. And it's why I don't think Bitcoin makes great money. I think it makes a great reserve currency because you only move it very occasionally based on the need to do trades. And an important thing to understand, I know this one's going long, but this is, this is really important to understand. If you can buy a currency on an exchange and use it to get another currency you want, you're probably better off doing that. Because there's no send. You don't have these big transaction fees in between with Bitcoin and some other stuff. So... That's how that all works. I know it might be clear as mud now, but I do want to make it a piece of advice. Uh, the Meweek cryptocurrency group would be a great thing to join, but I put on there today a thing called Dash School. When Dash really started taking off, they put this gal uh, on their channel, and she did a lot of videos to explain what cryptocurrency was. There's a playlist called Dash School. The first three videos of the six have nothing to do with Dash. It's just blockchain, how blockchain works, and why blockchain works. If you're struggling with this, start there. Then come back and listen to this video again. I bet it will make more sense. And join us on the MeWe Cryptocurrency Practical Discussion Group. And uh, there's plenty of people that know more than me that will help you get answers. Take care, guys. Long edition of Miyagi Mornings. We'll come back to you with a short one tomorrow. And I need a topic. Please let me know what you want to hear in the comments below or email me. Take care, guys. Hey guys and gals, Jack here with uh, Miyagi Mornings, episode 18. I'm back in the office instead of out on the property by the Miyagi. Not running from the weather today. I actually recorded this video and somehow managed to delete and clean out my deleted folder on my phone. So I have to re-record it. I've had a hiccup with my interview with my guest, so this is the time I got. So I'm going to go ahead and fix this. So today's episode is the difference between security and privacy. And this is one of those things that, like, in my gut... I'm like, do I have to say this? And then the more I listen to people, the more I realize, yeah, I do. Like, This is such a fundamental thing where these things are two totally different concepts. But one of the things that's been done to control people in our world today is to change the literal meaning of words in their mind. What a word means is irrelevant in reality to you if it means something different in your head. So... Just be completely blunt and honest, right? We have a rainbow farting unicorn here. And if I called that that little unicorn there a a diddly-doo and you believed it was a diddly-doo, then diddly-doo to you would mean unicorn. You see how that works? We've been convinced that security and privacy are the same thing. They're not. They're totally different. And here's a way to understand it. Let's say that you lived in a house. With all of the latest security apparatuses to keep people from getting into your house and breaking in. You had, you know, bio scans to get in and stuff like that. You had armed guards outside that would, like, turn people away. Like, you lived like, you know, a super rich dude with the highest level of possible security. But you also lived in the middle of a busy area, and all your walls, interior and exterior, were made of glass. Let's say it was big, thick, bulletproof glass. No one can get through it, but everybody can see in. Do you have any privacy? But do you have security? See the difference? And this is what's happened. We've been convinced that if we have security online, we have privacy online. Those are not the same things. And so I want you to think about a couple different things. How about your bank account? Is your bank account secure? And I know when I say, you know, you're not likely to lose your money in the bank, there's people like, well, there could be a bank crisis or whatever. I understand that. Otherwise, right, unless the bank itself fails and like all of them fail so FDIC doesn't kick in, your your money is really secure in a bank account. And if somebody knows your bank account, that doesn't mean they can steal your money. It doesn't even mean they can see what's going on inside your bank account. But do you have actual privacy in your bank account? And the answer is absolutely not. I asked my wife this, and the first thing she said, well, anybody that works for the bank can probably see it. She's right. Oh, no. Yeah. In fact, there's people at the bank whose job is to look at your account and see if there's anything that looks suspicious. What's that mean? whatever they feel that it means large deposit, weird number of deposit, maybe several deposits or withdrawals of the same amount over a period of time. all these things like this this deposit's not really that large, but it's large for this person. You see what I mean? like oh so look at this like this person's never you know, more than a few thousand bucks here and there and usually they you know get about $800 a week in their in their deposits from their from their job and they just did a $25,000 transfer. That's suspicious. Maybe they're closing on a property next week, and they moved the money so they could write a check to cover the, 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 the down payment on the property. Who knows? But it's suspicious. And then it's reported to the government. Your bank account is not private. It is secure. Let's think about something like online social media. Your Facebook account is actually pretty secure. Now, people do get their Facebook uh, accounts hacked into, and it's generally something stupid they did to allow it to happen. And especially if you're running a brand and you're running a page with a brand, you set up two-factor authentication. Uh, without that, people really can't get into your, your your page on Facebook. And I'm talking about a brand page, not your personal page. Pretty secure. Not private. Not private at all. Facebook sees everything you do, tracks everything you do, records everything you do, sells everything you do to the highest bidder, or all the bidders, really. right? They have different price tiers for access to you. And they report everything that you do that the government wants to the government. And as far as we know, they report it to the United States government for United States citizens. But, boy, I don't put it past them that they might provide data to foreign governments. We have reports of that already happening. So Facebook is relatively secure. It's not private. And, you know, and, and it's not just not secure or, or not just private on Facebook. When you're on Facebook and you click a link and you go to another website, Facebook tracks what you do there. And when you go from that website to another website and you make comments or take activities, Facebook's tracking that. Unless you're using something like a technology like Facebook Container for Firefox that kind of locks it down into Facebook only, everything you do off, off of Facebook, you're being tracked across it. You can even look it up in your profile and see they're tracking it. So you have no privacy just because you have security. Let's look at something like, well, clearly then the world of Bitcoin Bitcoin provides privacy, and see, privacy is big on like you got to think of it like a dimmer switch. How much depends on how you use it and who's looking at it. So if every time you receive Bitcoin, like like I do, I'm going to do real quick answering a call that was important that was going on in the middle of this from my guest for today. Uh, but anyway, so Bitcoin. You end up in a situation where you are accepting Bitcoin to a single address. Really stupid. But you build up a lot of transactions over time to that address. Now, somebody comes to you and wants to buy something for Bitcoin. You say, here, send it to this address. You've not given them that address. They can go put that address in the Block Explorer. They can see all the transactions that ever went into or out of that address and its current balance. Does that seem very private to you? It's really secure. There is no network in the world that is probably more secure than Bitcoin because it's so valuable to participate in, in, in providing security for the Bitcoin network. We call those people's miners, and we think of them as mining coin. but what they, they do mostly is they verify transactions and prevent counterfeiting in doing so through consensus. Incredibly secure. No one, Infinity, has ever hacked Bitcoin, no matter what the TV or some other moron told you. People have hacked into exchanges, nobody's hacked the Bitcoin network. Okay, so it's incredibly secure. It's not private at all. Do you really want your customer to be able to pull up that account number and say, here's how much money the person I just bought from has there. Here's all the transactions in and out. So unless we're using a privacy coin like Monero or Pirate, which I prefer Pirate over Monero, it's not private at all. It's secure. And you need to start thinking about this. You need to start thinking about this. You should be using a VPN for your online activities. You should be using things like the Tor browser when you're doing anything that you would, you would not want somebody to know about. Oh, that's the dark web. That's the dark web. See, everything that's to your advantage over the people that want to track, trace, and record what you do, they convince you is something only bad people do. Only bad people do. And I love these people that are like, I just feel, I feel bad for you when you're like, but I have nothing to hide. You sound like an idiot when you say that. Let me ask you a question. There are people that think that way. Well, there's not really anything, you know. Immediate. Okay. Have you ever whispered to anybody? Then you have things you'd like to keep private. Have, have you ever told anybody a secret? Then you have things you'd like to keep private. Have you ever kept a secret for somebody? Then you have things that you'd like to keep private. Is there anything that you do on a daily basis that you don't want advertised to the world? Then you have things that you would like to keep private. So when it comes to social media, I use platforms like MeWe, which are so much more private than Facebook. And people are like, well, what if they sell us out someday? Well, they might. But I definitely trust the platform that says, I will not do this to you, over the platform that says, we absolutely do this to you. You need to start thinking differently about this. We live in a world where the people in charge of the world economic system, the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, etc., Are flat out saying to you that within 10 years you'll own nothing, but you'll never have been happier. Ah, okay, sure, guys, we're gonna trust you with that. See, if you don't own anything, where does all your stuff come from? Somebody owns it. That makes you a tenant in your own home. It makes you a tenant of your computer. It makes you a tenant of your cell phone. It makes you, and that means somebody owns it. And somebody's on the other side of that rental transaction. That's the only way you get into owning nothing, is somebody else has to own it. It's not going to be collectively owned. If you believe that, then i got a bridge to sell you out in the West Texas desert. It's a hell of a deal. I'll sell it to you for 50000 R. Here's an address you can transfer to, and at least no one will be able to see what happened on that address. Start thinking differently, because we are literally heading for a world where the only thing that you might truly own will have to be private to retain ownership of it. Please understand, security and privacy are not the same thing. That's it for this episode of Miyagi Mornings. I'll be back with something else for you tomorrow. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode 20. It's pretty cool that we've uh, already gotten to episode 20 of this little YouTube series or I should say online video series because it's good on YouTube and it's better at Odyssey where they actually believe in freedom and free speech. And I just figure it's only a matter of time before YouTube shuts down my channel. So you might as well jump ahead of the game and get on over to Odyssey and subscribe to me over there. Anyway, and that's O-D-Y-S-E-E, Odyssey see, like you can see the truth. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about something completely non-controversial. I don't expect that I would get banned for talking about stuff like this, but you just never know. Gardening could be kind of one of the more dangerous things in the world to the people in charge of the world as people being self-sufficient and self-reliant. Yeah, gardening is an insurrectionist act in 2020. The question today is really a gardening tactic, though, and that is... What should you build your raised beds with if you're going to build raised beds? And what this person said is, hey, um, my vehicle, I can't really transport landscape timbers. Don't have really the room for it. And they're expensive compared to cinder blocks, which are cheap. Would you ever build a raised bed, Jack, with uh, con- uh cinder block? Uh, or am I crazy for even thinking about it? Now, let's just start with a basic answer to the question. I would have no problems building raised beds out of cinder blocks. They are fairly inexpensive, but if you work out the linear footage, it's not that much less expensive than landscape timbers, depending on what you're putting them together with, right? So if you're doing something that's really high strength and you're using something like structural wood screws, you'll have more money in the wood screws uh, than you will have in uh, the the timber in a, in a landscape-based raised bed, landscape timber-based raised bed. But there's no reason to do that. You can use a big drill and you can use uh, rebar, pre-cut rebar of specific lengths and stuff like that. We did that with the ones I built. And then at the higher levels, we went to just basically galvanized nails. And it was very inexpensive to do that way. But I would say, yeah, probably per linear foot plus foot of rise, it probably would cost a little bit less to do uh, with uh, cinder block. There are some trade-offs. And here's one of them. Like, you want your bed level. So if you're going to level cinder block, you kind of have to, at least on the first course, or if you're more than one course, level every block individually. With a wood-framed bed, you just kind of basically rough out a level. And then you build your first frame, and you stabilize it. And then you put a level on it, and then you shim it until it's level and then you backfill underneath it. So it's much easier to level your first course if you're doing a timber frame than doing something like concrete block. So it's just less labor on that first course and depending on what kind of ground you have that can be a lot of work or it can be a little bit of work it all depends on how much it'll save you longevity of course cinder blocks will last longer than you will unless somebody hits them with a a sledgehammer and landscape timbers depending on where you live how moist everything is what your overall conditions are can last anywhere from i've seen timber frame beds go 20 years I've i've torn out retaining walls as part of the construction work that we did uh, in the past, that were 15 to 20 years old and the timbers were still solid. And I've had other people tell me they've had timber frames rot out in five to seven years. I think it all depends on a lot of environmental factors and how you maintain and manage them. I definitely recommend if you put in timber frame or pressure treated lumber for a raised bed that around the circumference you install landscape fabric as a vapor barrier between the soil and the lumber, and that will dramatically, and I mean dramatically, extend the life expectancy of that. Another thing that you can do is to lay down a thin strip, and I should have done this when I built the big raised beds in my my yard, and I didn't, it was one of those things I let slip through, but a, 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 a strip wider than the bottom lumber, whatever that is, of uh, the material that they use to make pond liners out of. You don't need a super expensive version thereof, uh, just the the low-end version. And that will also help with some edge weed blocking as well. Cover that up. Nobody will see it. If the first timber is to the point where it's just pretty much under the ground, you can even kind of cup it around it, and that will help as well. On the expense side, is you know that's going to be debatable. I think that whenever you're evaluating any material for a project, and there's other things you can make raised beds out of. You can make them out of brick. You can make them out of tree timber. I mean, we've done them out of like when we have like trees that have to go down anyway, and you have reasonably straight trunk tree. It's free lumber. Boom, stick it in place. We've done all kinds of things: native rock. You, and, and a lot of times, raise bends, that's what you're going to do. You're going to use what you have available to you. And if you don't have anything available, then you're going to source materials. Right? Now, if you are sourcing materials and you're, you know, you're going to Home Depot, Lowe's, et cetera, when people say, like, I don't have a vehicle to transport this stuff, I think one thing you guys should be aware of is how efficient delivery service from Lowe's and or Home Depot really is. Almost everything that they will deliver on a truck, they will deliver for a flat fee of either 50 or $65, depending on where you are and some other things. That might seem expensive if you're getting 10 landscape timbers, and it would be. What I try to do, and this saves me a ton of money, with, and Lowe's is who I use because they're the easier parking lot to get in and out of, so I have the relationship there. And That's literally how I pick between them. Like the Home Depot parking lot that's close to me, like you feel like you're taking your life into your hands when you go into that parking lot with getting into a wreck. And the Lowe's parking lot's nice and open. So that's why that's the only reason I picked Lowe's over Home Depot. But Lowe's will generally deliver anything I order for fifty bucks. So what I will do is I will evaluate upcoming projects and I will do what's called a takeoff which is basically an estimate if you were in construction estimating and you're going to sell a job. I'll do my own takeoff for my own projects. Every single thing that I need for that project from end to end. And instead of doing it for one project, I'll, I'll map out two or three projects, maybe four. If they're little, I'll do four. If they're big, maybe two. And I will make up that bill of materials. I will put all of that in the shopping cart for Lowe's and I will say order. And if I had a truck... Capable of getting all of that material, I would still give them 50 bucks to not have to go haul that much. I mean, if you're talking like some bags of sacrete, some cinder block, a bunch of landscaping timbers, a bunch of pipe, like when you start adding that stuff up, like first of all, you're going to end up taking multiple trips most of the time if you have a pickup truck, even with a pipe rack or a trailer. You got to be there for all that time. You got to haul all that shit. And the Lowe's guy comes out with this big ass truck, backs up gets that little cool-looking forklift off, beep, beep, beep. I say, put it there. He puts it right there, and I do no work. So, if again, if you were just getting enough landscaping timbers to build two raised beds, that probably doesn't make sense. But for all of you with your projects, evaluate... What you're doing, then you don't spend, like right now, you don't spend a freaking hour and a half in a freaking Lowe's or a Home Depot dealing with a bunch of scared people that look like sheep running around with their masks on, horrified of everything, waiting in line, and I'll, it's totally worth 50 bucks. Totally worth it. That's my big thing. And again, as far as the materials you construct your bed with, I don't think it really matters. I, I really don't. Whatever works for you, but what I'll finish up with is, do you need raised beds? Why are you putting in a raised bed? Why are you using extra money and extra materials. Here's where raised beds make sense. You don't have much soil to begin with. You just don't have much soil there. Okay, I I get it. That's me. Um, So my plants can't put down deep roots because they can't go through rock. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, You're in a climate where better drainage is really, you get too much precipitation. That makes sense. Cooler climates often make sense. They pull plants up a little higher. They're a little more resilient to frost. You have a lot of trouble with infiltration of weeds and grasses and stuff like that. Creating a border gives your mind a clear delineated space. Anything that, in, you know, any, it's like it's like guard the gate. Anything that comes across must die, and and that is useful. But like where I grew up in Pennsylvania. We had about a quarter acre garden. We didn't make no raised beds. We didn't bring in, you know, a, a whole bunch of filth to do that much. We basically created rows and we had pathways and it was right in the ground and it worked perfectly. But we had good soil. We had a nice location, generally flat. It was pretty easy to maintain if I knew what I know now. As a kid, I would have done a lot less digging in spring, you know, redefining the edges of the beds and cutting grass and weeds with an edger and a line like my grandfather had me do, and I would have been a little bit more permanent. But there, in that location, if I were to move back to my dad's home today and put a garden in where the old garden spot was, I wouldn't put a single raised bed in. So make sure you're not expending extra money, time, labor, and materials where it's not necessary, because man's been growing stuff in the ground for as long as man's been growing stuff. But sometimes the raised bed is the right way to go. That wraps up the week. Remember, you can catch the entire week on Saturday mornings with a podcast that's in the Survival Podcast feed for Miyagi Mornings, the whole week put together in an audio-only podcast. Or you can check these videos out and share them with your friends, because they're a lot shorter than a whole podcast, and they always key in on one thing. Catch you guys later. Hope you enjoyed the week. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. With Miyagi mornings in the subject line, all subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.